0: News, 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 New, 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 news. new York City.
1: The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. F-A-Q. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn on a lovely Saturday here with Alex Brooklyn in Manhattan. Hello, Alex. Hello. Hello. We've got lots of New York City news to discuss, but first some, er, personal news, as FAQ is now part of BrickHouse, an independent media cooperative built, owned, and operated by journalists. This is our hundredth episode, more on that in just a sec, and we've never asked listeners for support. Now we are. If you'd like to uh, support this pod and ensure we have the production budget to keep it going forever, please contribute to the Brickhouse Kickstarter. The link is at F-A-Q-N-Y-C, or just search for Brickhouse on Kickstarter. There's some awesome rewards for contributors, and we and the other eight fairly fantastic sites involved in this, including uh, politics site Hmm Daily, Muckraking site Sludge, Olongo Africa. No Man is an Island, and Popula would all be uh, truly obliged to have your support for wolfproof independent journalism. Another programming note, this is our 100th episode. We have a uh, 100th episode spectacular coming. It's likely to be in about our 103rd episode, but who's counting? Please stay tuned for that. It's going to be fun, it's going to be interesting, and it's going to bring back Just about every FAQ guest we've had, at least those who are still willing to return. Looking at you, Mayor de Blasio. And that's going to be awesome. But in the meantime, you've got this one. And coming up this Sunday, Alex, uh, fill our listeners in on Thirst, please. Now virtual.
2: Well, I'm pretty sure since we're recording this on Saturday that around the time people are listening to it, Thirst will be happening this afternoon. So we're recording this on Saturday, but Thirst is happening on Sunday. So if you're an early listener to FAQ, you're in luck because Sunday afternoon, September 13th, a recurring storyteller event that I started with my friend Gracie in rundown tenement apartments and empty storefronts, well, we're going virtual. The storyteller event is called Thirst. Generally, it was All of us kind of crammed into these small spaces. But since it's going to be a long time till we ever do that again, we figured we'd try it out online. So the theme for this virtual thirst is called Roaming Charges, and we have storytellers from San Francisco, Barcelona, Paris, and New York. Some of the storytellers include my dad, as usual, Annie Nochenti, Mara Lethem, and a whole bunch of other people. You can find the link of where you can view this live. It's going to be live streaming on the Racket Media YouTube channel. You can find that on the FAQ page. I'll be tweeting it out. If you ever want to tell a story, there's a ton of ways to get in touch. We're probably going to be doing this virtually for quite some time. And, you know, if you want to listen to the first one, log on to YouTube. That's Sunday, September 13th. It starts Eastern Standard Time, 2 p.m., PST, 11 a.m., and Central European Time, since we do have some European storytellers in the mix, it's going to be 8 p.m. for them.
1: And the nice thing with doing this virtually is uh, you don't actually have to be in New York. If you have a thirst to hear some stories. So with that, a few things happening around New York in another busy, interesting week. After a a summer that, that provided no respite from busy, interesting weeks, we've had this remarkable shuffle of the uh, homeless starting really on the uh, Upper West Side where residents were furious that there were homeless men being placed at the uh, luxury Lucerne Hotel. So one thing leading to another, we had an incredible game of musical chairs where those men were being moved into the Harmonious shelter in Midtown on East 31st and the disabled families that had been staying at the Harmonia shelter were being pushed out in the course of this. Those chairs having been started into action by Randy Mastro, the former Rudy Giuliani deputy mayor, working for the Upper West Siders, fighting to get the homeless men out of their neighborhood. And that's become uh, an interesting and really distressing theme of the virus as the city is trying to find places for the homeless. Of course, homeless people are getting pushed from one shelter to another, including families with kids who are about to start school, is nothing new, but seeing it happen in the midst of everything else right now is remarkably distressing.
2: It's almost like supportive housing has been set up to fail by not giving enough resources by the city. Weird.
1: Which is a very long-term issue, and the Upper West Side, of course, which has long been an affluent neighborhood, also used to be filled with SROs, single residence occupancies, where you have lots of men mostly who are not all the way together, but could afford to pay rent, have like a single room, a shared bathroom, sometimes supportive services there, and a place to live. And those were eaten away in phases over recent decades, which has had a significant effect on homelessness. And that's a topic we'll be talking about more next week with Julie Sandorf. But for this week, pivoting for a second from the bottom of the income chain all the way up to the top, we had this remarkable letter sent by 150 business leaders to the mayor saying they need more leadership from him on crime and quality of life concerns, or it was going to jeopardize the city's economic recovery. That letter, according to a remarkable backstory story in the New York Times today, had actually been drafted weeks ago, but the members held off on sending it because, and I quote, they felt it was unseemly to be writing from the Hamptons and thus waited for their post-Labor Day returns to uh, push this letter off. And this has generated a lot of conversation about what the obligations of the business class should be and also about the mayor's leadership or lack thereof in that moment. Again, the letter is done now, but I don't think this is a story that is going away.
2: It occurred to me that a lot of these companies have money earmarked for social good, that maybe, just maybe they could help help out. Maybe. How about they help out with some of their money? I mean, they were bailed out. Maybe they could bail out the city. I don't know. You know, is that crazy?
1: These companies, a lot of them put money into New York. Uh, I'd say a few things. A a lot of them have given to uh, prominent Republicans. And I'd be curious how many of the signers have reached out, say, to Mitch McConnell and said, you really need to be supporting New York. It's also notable that they didn't list any specific things that they would be doing in this letter, but just called out the mayor. So, We'll see where that goes. The mayor in the meantime insists that this all comes down to Washington, that New York will recover because it's always recovered, which is a very passive way to put things, and uh, just hasn't seemed to have taken a lot of agency. One thing he has taken agency on is reopening the schools in this strange hybrid model now delayed in which kids will be going two or three days a week when they start, if they start. We're now in that interregnum between when the school year was supposed to start And when it's now scheduled to in a couple of weeks and already we're seeing positive tests at a whole number of schools and all sorts of distressing information circulating about teachers testing positive, about contact tracers not in fact reaching out to them according to other teachers and and workers in those schools that I think are raising some pretty significant concerns about how how smoothly this is going to go when it starts, if it starts. And finally, we had a small taste of big news this week when Governor Andrew Cuomo announced, having evidently given the mayor about two hours notice, that we're finally going to have inside dining. But it's not going to start until the end of September, right when the weather is really starting to turn, and it's going to be at 25% capacity in those restaurants. So we're going to be at a point where, where kids are back in school, something like halftime, but restaurants are at quarter time. And right when the weather's getting cold and outside dining is starting to diminish, and again, assuming this actually happens, and that's going to be a tremendous burden on the restaurants that have made it so far uh, without giving up on their businesses. Which brings us to uh, Carla and James Murray, who Alex talked to this week. Alex, do you want to fill us in on that interview?
2: Yeah. uh, Carla, I met in Stuyvesant Park over the week with her dog, Hudson, and Her and her husband are architectural photographers, and they've been photographing mom and pop shops around New York City for the last, like, 25 years. So she sat down and talked with me a little bit about the experience of photographing these restaurant owners during COVID and, like, what they're going through. Because they've been photographing them so long, they talk to these people all the time. You know, they don't just, like, photograph their storefront, put it in a book, of which they've had several out, and, like, keep going. You know, they stay in touch. They've been East Village residents a long time. And uh, here's what Carla had to say. So where are you originally from? Were you born in New York? Yeah, I was born in
0: Mount Sinai in in Harlem and then um, grew up in the Bronx. And I've been an East Village resident since like 1988. And then that's where I met my husband. I mean, we weren't dating at the time, but we were friends and we made friends for a long time. And then, yeah, then we just got married and we just said, we got to stay in the neighborhood. Well, my husband, James, and I are architectural and interior photographers, um, and that's how we make our living. But our passion for like well over 25 years now is documenting what we like to call as the mom and pop stores of, you know, the five boroughs. To us, these like little small independent stores, they're like the backbone of the community. I mean, they, they are what makes like each neighborhood of the city the unique, you know, place that it is.
2: And you started doing this before the pandemic
0: oh yeah like i said for like well over 25 years that we've been documenting these small stores and i mean both photographically and interviews with the store owners as well
2: and we, where did it start how did it all get started
0: um it's kind of like a, i'll i'll make a long story short but we have a background in graffiti and graffiti is a very it's a letter based art form it's all about like how you manipulate your tag your name like so you're using the letters and you're using them in like unique styles and and you're manipulating the way they look. So we were always like looking at like these store signs, like these big neon signs or the hand painted signs in the window. We were always like fascinated by, you know, what we were seeing. And graffiti being like a temporary art form, like it's here today, gone tomorrow. Like you you must document it right away if you see something that you like because you can't count on it being there again. We started noticing these mom and pop stores were closing, especially in the outer boroughs that we were documenting graffiti in. So we started photographing them as well. And then really it was interviewing the store owners that really like took the project to another level because the store owners had such a, Fascinating. Just little facts and like the history behind their store, whether it was like passed down from generation to generation or how they even got involved in the business in the first hand was so amazing to hear from them that we said, oh, we got to keep on documenting them. What was
2: one of the early ones that you can remember that were like that was super just inspiring or fascinating that kind of drew you further into this practice? (sighs)
0: Um, one of the early ones like that was a really amazing interview was like this candy store
2: in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. And just for our listeners, that's Katie's Candy Store in Bed-Stuy.
0: Yeah, and we had gone in because we loved like it had an old hand-painted sign. And we had gone in and we spoke with the owner and she was like this i guess you could say like you sounded like you're um, a new yorker that smoked probably like 20 packs a day like that deep gravelly voice she wasn't taking anything from anybody she had survived in the neighborhood over 40 years and she's like oh i've been through the crack the dope the crime everything this neighborhood has thrown at me i've survived and she told us i speak three languages English, Spanish, and motherfucker. I mean, when she said that to us, we're like, oh my God, she's a character. She's perfect. Look at her. And she even told us, like, how she was robbed and that the people that robbed her tied her up. Like, they had a mask on, but, like, she could see through their eyes who they were. Yeah, at the candy store. She said, I know who you are, and I'm going to tell your mom (laughs) what you're doing to me. And forget getting in trouble with the police. You're going to get a beating from from your mom when I tell her what you did. And they let her go. So this was the type of person that she was. Like, she really cared about her neighborhood. She tried to keep her prices low, you know, to keep kids out of drugs. Like, she sold Penny Candy in, like, 2004, and like cola for like 35 cents or something. She was perfect. I mean, just a quintessential like hard working New Yorker and caring about her neighborhood, but she was forced to close. The building that she was in, she didn't own it. And that's the problem with like many of the storefronts. They don't survive because if the rent goes up too high, they just can't stay. And in her case, the landlord had wanted her out because they wanted to make the whole building like more of a boutique condo. Like they didn't, it was kind of a rundown building and and they wanted to turn it around because this was like in the early 2000s when real estate was getting higher and higher. So they ended up kicking her out. And the saddest part of the story is that we kept in touch with her son after the store had closed. And then it wasn't even like a year later, he told us, he's like, oh, um, Katie passed away. And we're like, what do you mean Katie passed away? You know, like last time we spoke with her, you know, she was doing okay. And he's like, well, she went in the hospital. She had gotten like pneumonia or something like that. And that's it. She just, she just died like a day and a half later. And I'm like, well, how, why? And he's like, I think that she lost her will to live. Like without the store, without having some place to go every single day, because she had lost her husband a couple of years before that. She just, she didn't, she didn't have that will to live anymore. And it, and it broke her heart. Hearing that because still today and that was like in 2007 when they kicked her out if you go there in 2020 the storefront is still empty it remained empty all this time so it like gets you thinking like gee maybe if the landlord hadn't been so greedy and kicked her out would first of all would the store still be there would katie still be alive like this there's just so many things that you you know you think about and like the consequences And to us, like walking down a block that has empty storefronts isn't like that's not inviting. That's not a block that I would want to go down as somebody that lives or even as a, you know, a tourist or something like that. So it doesn't do any good to anybody to have these empty stores. So it was just heartbreaking. And I mean, for us, the culmination of like all the reasons why we keep on documenting these unique places.
2: Since the pandemic, I see that on your Instagram and everything, you've interviewed store owners very specifically about being able to stay alive during this time. Can you talk to me a little bit about when the pandemic hit and how that affected you and your husband's work?
0: Well, sure. I mean, since like really like the I guess the second week in March, I mean, um, we've had more time to devote to trying to highlight these small businesses because I mean you know our commercial photography just you know like everything was at a standstill because you know nobody nothing nothing was open nothing nothing was going on and we just took that opportunity to say let's start walking around our neighborhood because we've been here the whole time I mean because we have a dog like Yes, we we were like trying to stay inside as much as possible, but at the same time, when you have a dog, you must go out and walk. So we like, well, if we're going out and walking the dog anyway, and he's very active, like he needs a lot of exercise, let's document what's going on and walk as far as we can and see. I mean, as a lifelong New Yorker, I've never, ever, ever seen the city so empty. I mean, it was shocking, shocking to me. And then we started talking to the store owners that remained open. I mean, mostly the businesses that were remained open were food-related businesses because that's all that could stay open in the beginning. And we're like, what's happening? And then and the owner of Tompkins Square Bagels, for instance, he, he stayed open. You know, it was devastating. He had to let go of employees because there wasn't anybody to buy the bagels. And he wanted I mean, he really cared about employees. He tried to keep them on. But... With selling so few, I mean, he told us business was down 80%. He didn't pay rent. I mean, uh, he didn't pay for rent for months. His landlord requested that, I think, that he started paying rent by, like, June or July. Luckily, they didn't try to kick him out. Like, he worked out a deal with them or whatever it was. But. In particular the east village neighborhood suffered so much is that a lot of college students live here and so nyu sent everybody home new school cooper union like they all closed down and like we never thought of the impact it's a domino effect so just like one thing can can tip something in, over the edge you know he told us even though we were able to stay open having these third-party delivery apps it's just like he said it's like uh having He's Italian. So he's just like, oh, I feel like I have a partner like the mafia, like they're taking they're taking 20 percent of my uh, you know, income because that's the only way people aren't coming in. You know, we can deliver. But through these apps, like that's not the answer either. So another business, Zaragoza, it's this hole in the wall, like little bodega. You wouldn't even think that. They sold anything but like you know sodas and stuff like that. But they had like a little sit-down restaurant inside where the mom—it's like a run by mother and father and son—and mom would make like these homemade Mexican you know dishes. Like every single day, right. they'd have yeah. a different special. That's on Avenue A by 13th Street. They don't have a lot of inside dining anyway, so it wasn't as a, as impactful as some place like Tompkins Square Bagels, where there was huge lines on the weekends, or Veselka that has a huge indoor area. I mean. They had the outdoor dining too, Baselka, for the warmer weather, but when we spoke with the owner there, Jason and Tom Bouchard, they told us even if every single table that they have in their outdoor dining area is full, they still are losing money. Like, they're not making money now. I mean, they're happy to be open, but they, they said even if every single table that they have in their dedicated outdoor dining area is full, they still lose money on a daily basis because they have to pay rent, they have expenses, you know, employees, the cost of raw materials even went up. I mean, all these little things, like, they they play a factor. And it, it, to us, it seems like a race against time to try to document them and try to raise awareness to help save them because the key for their survival is that they need our business. You know, that's like the only way they're gonna stick around. I mean, yeah, I mean, it would have been great for a rent relief and all the, all these things, but we can't wait around for that. I mean, that could take forever. You know, the the city, their policies change at a very very slow pace so meanwhile things are closing like on a daily basis so we have to be like proactive and try to help save things while they're still able to you know do that
2: you had mentioned at the beginning of our interview like the love of these fonts and these storefronts and just like the structure of the letters even being a really integral part to the city and almost as integral to the city as like the bricks and stone that make the buildings. What does it feel like right now to be people so uniquely positioned to document these like the hopes and the dreams and the businesses and the mom and pop shops and the words and the look of this like hopefully isn't but we're all scared is going to go away very soon.
0: Well, I mean, to us, these, like these small independent stores, I mean, a lot of them are immigrant owned. I mean, people, this is like their, their dream. Like they came from wherever in the world. They came to the United States and they dreamed of having their own business. And when they're finally able to open up their business to have that dream crushed by something that's not under their control. I mean, it's different if your business fails because you've made poor business decisions or, you know, if you open a restaurant and your food is crappy, well, then, you know, then you deserve to close, I suppose. But that's not the case with the coronavirus. These are conditions that are beyond their control and beyond anybody's imagination. Like, if you had said to me, the number one reason why businesses are closing now is because of a a virus, I'd be like... (laughs) what are you talking about? That didn't make any sense. I'd be like, no, no, it's the rent. It's It's always the rent. One historic bar that we interviewed the owner, it's like the oldest gay bar in New York City, Julius. They were closed for a long time, even though they technically could have opened because they serve food as well. They didn't want to risk losing their liquor license, to serve food because they knew that it would be very hard to police people that would come by because it's a very social place but it would they knew that it would be difficult to police like okay if you want to come and hang out outside you have to have a hamburger now so they were scared and they didn't open i mean they finally now opened with some outdoor tables but I mean, it's like seven tables. The owner's like, that's not enough. That's not going to pay my rent. She just did it. She reopened just because she felt like the community needed it. Like they were missing, you know, their friends. And because like a lot of the customers have become their friends. Like that's another thing about like a mom and pop store. It's like this relationship that you can have with the owner. It's like you get to speak with them. Like we became friends with many, many of them. And, you know, we consider them part of our family. Like, when we saw the stores weren't reopening we were generally worried like are they are they not healthy i mean did something happen to them let alone the store like we were concerned for them so for julius they reopened more just to have their extended family be together again so people can have you know some sort of normalcy because in most times of tragedy like you know after september 11th Or, you know, like we had a a blackout or like our neighborhood, we lost power for five days after Superstorm Sandy. Everybody came together. Like it wasn't like, oh, just stay in in your apartment. Um, It was just like, go outside and all gather and try to like rally together and be strong for everyone. I mean, especially after 9-11. But this was different because of the virus. Everyone's told stay inside, you know, isolate. Isolation isn't necessarily a good thing for your health either, you know, mentally. It's, it's really, it's been heartbreaking for us. It, it really, really, really has. But we remain hopeful. I mean, I'm always like an optimistic person. Like I, I'm optimistic by nature. So I feel like New Yorkers are strong and I feel like we can overcome this. But at the same time, the longer these places stay closed, the worse chances of it, you know, in the long term. Because there's only so much you can go in debt for. Because that's what they're doing now, a lot of them. They're basically, they're going into debt. And they're hoping, against hope, that things will turn around, just like, you know, a lot of store owners, they went through the 70s. You know, like, we know the owner of um, Russ and Daughters, and then... People told them time and time again through the 70s when the East Village and in the, in the 80s, when the East Village was horrendous in their neighborhood, oh, you should get out of here, you know, leave. This is no place to have a business. But they stuck with it. They stuck to their guns and they said, no, we believe that things will turn around. So the longer it goes on that people start losing hope. And I mean, we hope not, but that's unfortunately something that we have to face
2: are you excited for any like upcoming are you going to just keep doing this
0: oh definitely i mean we're keeping on documenting we're also holding like a free online workshop trying to get other people to document the stores that are important for them you know both photographically and through interviews talking to the owner is is really important because that's where you find out the you know the real information like what you hear about whether a store is struggling or not you really don't know like if you ask them Then you're going to find out, you know, exactly what is going on.
2: When are those workshops?
0: I mean, that's available now. It's free on our our YouTube channel, The Workshop. And we had a place where we were going to exhibit all the participants' photographs and interviews. But... Unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're gonna be able to use that place for this year because it's, a, it's part of a theater. So we're finding an alternative place in the fall where we can mount the exhibition. It might be in an empty storefront. We're working with that now because uh, there's certainly a lot of empty storefronts to choose from. So we want other people to be able to showcase their photography and their oral histories because the more people that get interested in doing this, I feel like hopefully the city and its officials will, can not ignore. You know, like the more people that do this and the more people that are outspoken about, hey, these businesses are important to us, then, then we can help them and, you know, do make policy changes that will help for their
2: long-term survival. Thank you so uh-huh. much for taking the time to talk with me. And what is your dog's name? This
0: is Hudson, and he is part of our photographic team. He is our ambassador. He makes friends with all the store owners and he gets lots of treats in the process. Oh, i sure he likes very
1: much. He does. F-A-Q. It's wonderful that people are documenting this and this is an incredible wave period in which the first wave of the virus, at least, is done here, but the, uh, the wave of economic destruction for uh, business owners, for individuals, for everyone else still hasn't crested. And... I'm just appreciative that there are people who are going to um, be weaving a trail for us to remember what's been lost.
2: By the way, this week we just lost Good Stuff Diner on 14th Street. No. Yeah.
1: Well, fuck. On that cheerful note, one more reminder if you're a a listener and you've been enjoying this show to uh, please go to Kickstarter, find The Brick House, and support... Wolfproof independent journalism Very much including FAQ NYC We're going to be adding more Content that will be original To Brick House in addition to these weekly Episodes which will remain exactly As they've been, no worries And uh, we'll have more news about that And our 103rd Episode Spectacular Coming to you soon Meantime FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media. We try to record at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU, but this week we recorded from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. Special thanks, as always, to our executive producer, Alex Lin, and chopper, slicer, mixer, master, Adam Kamara. A huge shout-out to both Carla and James Murray. Carla for joining us and both of them for the work they're doing. So, as ever, wear a mask, be safe, be good to each other. Keep listening to our podcast. Support us on Kickstarter. Give us an elbow tap if you see us on the street. Let us know what we're doing wrong, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.